Good evening, everyone. My name is Simon Barrett, and this is another uh, edition of the Journey into Justice with Bellow and Barrett. As always, I'm joined by my um, very good friend, Mark Bellow. Mark, welcome to the program. You hesitated on that very good friend part. I'm like I'm like offended here. <laughs> um, uh, on this um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I'd like to mention that uh, my friend Mark has written a very important book on race in the 21st century. It's a novel, betrayal in black it's his fourth Zachary Blake legal thriller and it depicts a rather sad event a young black husband and father is gunned down by a racist police officer in a fictional Michigan town during a routine traffic stop The novel takes the reader through the shooting, its aftermath, the widow's agony, and her fight for justice in the criminal and civil justice systems. Mark's hero in all of his books is attorney Zachary Blake. In this case, Zachary literally takes on City Hall on behalf of his client and tackles some important racial issues that we face today in real America. It's no secret that America has experienced a a rash of police shootings of black citizens in recent years. The land Philando uh, uh, Castile, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray comes in mind, as do many others. Tonight, Mark, with your permission, I thought it would be a good time to discuss Betrayal in Black and its subject matter in the context of Dr. King's Historic 1963, I have a dream speech. Has America um, progressed on race since 1963? Is Dr. King's dream uh, any closer to being realized? How does that sound, Mark? Interesting topic, ladies and gentlemen. Do you agree? So, let's get started. Mark, I'll hand the microphone over to you. Sounds good to me, Simon. And by the way, thanks for the plug of my new book, Betrayal in Black. What what I'd really like to discuss today on on this important uh, King commemorative holiday are what I consider to be misconceptions about his legacy and his movement. 
as all of our listeners must know, Dr. King was assassinated 52 years ago. That fact, all by itself, should tell us something about about race relations in this country. Uh, King was in his 30s. He was a peaceful uh, protester, and he was gunned down in the prime of his life. And as I was researching our topic for tonight's program, I came across another interesting book. It's written by Jean Theo Harris. Uh, I may be prostituting or bastardizing her her name, but it's T-H-E-O-H-A-R-I-S. Jean Theo Harris. She teaches political science at Brooklyn College. And this book, for those listeners who are interested, is called A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. It's an attempt to get beyond the myths that have arisen about the Civil Rights Movement and look at how it was really seen back in 1963 and further what it means for us today. Now, I'm going to take a wild leap and suggest that in 2020, most citizens, especially those of us in the Midwest or the Northeast, believe that Martin Luther King Jr. was always beloved and celebrated in their communities. What are you hearing in Mississippi where you are, Simon? Ah, that's an interesting question. My, uh, my, my wife mentioned it earlier today when I uh, told her what the subject of the program was, and she said, I have nothing against Dr. King, but I really think that uh, it's all overblown. So interesting. They, interesting. Yeah, that's, no. that's not that's not that's not all that surprising to me. Um, uh, your wife is uh, is I presume Caucasian. Yes. And and British or no? No, no. She was born <laughs> in uh, New Orleans. Oh, okay. Um, I, it, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. In this in 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 Theo Harris's book, which is very compelling, she refers to a New York Times New York Times poll from 1964, which is the same year the Civil Rights Act was passed. And this poll shows that a majority of New Yorkers, not people in Mississippi, but New Yorkers, thought that the Civil Rights Movement had gone too far. Another national poll taken in 1966, after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and just two years before King's death, found that only 28% of white Americans had a favorable opinion of Dr. King. Now, in contrast to that, I don't think we'd be surprised by this, but it just shows you the what, I, what I'm going to call the racial divide. In contrast to this, in the same year, a poll of black citizens found 
that 78% of blacks rated King's job performance in the fight for what was called at the time Negro rights was, quote, excellent, unquote. So you see, Simon, despite favorable political wins and an absolute constitutional justification for the civil rights movement in the mid-60s, this racial divide existed then, and as you kind of indicated in your conversation, in my humble opinion, it still clearly exists today. Now, I, I would guess, just, just, just a guess, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming based on what's going on in the country today, that there are many listeners who might be shocked by my suggestion. They'd say something like, look how far we've come. Well, I, I, you know, I, I question that a bit. So, Simon, let's explore exactly how far we have come. Sound good? It sounds very good indeed. All right. Now, even the most ardent denier of racial problems would have to admit that we still have civil unrest in this country, right? Absolutely. I mean, okay, uh, you know, black people still live in ghettos, or at least black-only communities. They still live in high levels of poverty, much more so than their white compatriots. Many still attend segregated schools. Blacks make far less money than whites. They're still incarcerated at far greater rates than whites. They serve longer sentences for the same crimes as whites. And they get paroled later and or less often than whites. Our still confused and racially divided citizens finally elect a black president and then we replace him with someone of questionable character on racial and ethnic issues, someone with questionable ethics who's about who was impeached and about to be tried in the Senate for impeachable offenses based on his ethics, and someone with questionable ability to put the country's interest and our citizens' interests over his own personal gratification. Now, obviously, there are... 40-some-odd percent of people who would absolutely disagree with what I just said. But it's hard to argue with some of the the points that I just made. And it's hard for me and others like me who care about social, civil, and criminal justice to understand this. POTUS is not the president only of those who like him, for crying out loud. He's the frigging president of the United States the president of all the people. And on top of that, as if it's not enough, over the last decade, there has been a remarkable increase in police shootings of innocent or unarmed black men under suspicious circumstances. And this last issue has been so alarming to me that it caused me to write my latest Zachary Blake legal thriller, Betrayal in Black. Uh, by the way, um, 
just a shameless plug, if you, if you don't mind. The book has been released as an e-book for Kindle uh, and has received 10 great reviews on Amazon. Thank you very much, everybody. And just last week, we, we released a hard copy so people who like to hold a book in their hands while they read can now read uh, my latest Zachary Blake legal thriller. With that in mind, though, as um, we continue with the King Holiday as our backdrop, I'd like to read a passage from Betrayal in Black that speaks to the issue of how far we've come as a country Um especially on this issue of racial equality, if that's okay. Certainly. Now, to set the stage for our listeners, the shooting occurs, and after the shooting, and after the criminal justice system and the civil justice system has had their crack at the cop shoots innocent black citizen incident, a white... Chief of Police turns to and addresses a Black Lives Matter representative at a public forum. Uh, That's the setting for this uh, portion of the book. Uh, Here we go. Michael, that's the name of a character. Michael, you mentioned something I'm curious about. People believe America has become a post-racial society. I have not heard that term before. What exactly do you mean by that? Thank you for your question, Chief. We must clarify our words so people will understand them. We had a black president. We have black superstar athletes and performers, black cabinet officials, attorneys, judges, Supreme Court justices, senators, members of Congress, mayors, and other dignitaries. Some of the most famous people in the world are people of color. Hell, just look at Beyonce and Jay-Z. So, the white man's perception is that we've arrived. Everything is equal, and we are now a post-racial society. In this society, we're all on equal footing. If you don't succeed, black or white, you have only yourself to blame. These post-racial advocates believe there is only personal responsibility and no societal responsibility. Well, there's a lot of truth to that, no? White suggest, sure there is, Zach, Kendall agrees. However, whether it is true, partially true, or yet to be true, is a meaningful conversation to have. Can a black man succeed today beyond his wildest imagination? Can he experience the so-called American dream? Sure he can. He can overcome the bigotry, societal views, and ideas standing in his way. But that doesn't mean he, unlike his white counterpart, doesn't have to rise above adverse societal views and bigotry. Do you understand? Yes, absolutely. It's a longer and harder climb to success, Blake concedes. You got the idea, but it's worse than that. How do you mean? You have a son, right? Two. Okay, two sons. How many you have is beside the point. Sorry, please continue. Let's assume your son and my son are young, college-educated adults. They're driving home from the same concert. Both are pulled over by separate white police officers. Now, I can't honestly say 
that there have been no incidents of white-on-white cop-citizen traffic stop shootings, but I have never heard of one reported by the media. I see where you're going. What are the chances your son is shot by the cop for any reason at all? Slim the none. What are the chances my son is shot, regardless of what a good person he is? Still slim, but better. In fact, statistics suggest that if that concert is performed in a predominantly white community, your son is far more likely to get pulled over than mine. I studied this phenomenon when doing research for the Hayes litigation. I absolutely see your point, and I want to point out that this has nothing to do with the clothes he's wearing or his station in life or his education. He's just a, a black kid in the wrong place at the wrong time, stopped by the wrong cop for the wrong reason. He could be a lawyer, a doctor, a politician, or simply my son. Suddenly, he's Marcus Hayes, bleeding to death in his car, and I'm Sarah Hayes, mourning the loss of my loved one. That's not fair, Michael. You act as if there's an epidemic of cop-on-black shootings when you know they are few and far between. There are thousands of cops, patriotic and law-abiding cops, who are laying their lives on the line for all citizens, black and white, all over this country, I wouldn't use the term epidemic, but I would absolutely use the term disturbing trend. I'm not suggesting there aren't good cops. There are two of them right up here on this stage. But what I am suggesting is that we need methods to weed out and properly train those inclined to make rash and deadly decisions based on race, Bendel argues. So where does Black Lives Matter fit into this discussion? Black Lives Matter fits in because although a member of any race or any ethnic group could be a victim of a cop shooting, in every instance where an officer cited fear of his or her life, the victim was black, Pendel contends. But that, but is that a media reporting issue or a factual issue? Maybe these things are happening to white men and women, but those cases don't make headline news, Blake suggests. The media is reporting on these cases because they're occurring with increased frequency. In point of fact, that's how and why Black Lives Matter was born, says Kendall. And we will keep railing against these institutional racist policies and incidents until they become a thing of the past. The opposite seems to be true in kidnapping cases. We couldn't get the media interested in Aisha's case because she was black. She had to compete with a cold case of a white kid, and the cold case won. Simon, this is just a small sampling of the trail in black. What did you think of that dialogue? It's quite representative of the difference between white and black perceptions in our current climate, wouldn't you say? Oh, indeed. In, in, in fact, I, <laughs> I find it um, most disturbing. Um, what, where... Where is the problem? Where have we gone wrong? Um, well, I, I, I don't it, think I, I, I think we've always been racist, and I don't think we're a post-racial society. But I do think that words and conversations, and it's a big reason why I wrote the book. Words and conversations can 
sway opinion. We can change minds, right? We have to try, don't we? Yes. So, so Simon, here's the point. Yes, progress has been made. But are blacks really that much better off than they were almost 60 years ago? Is it really a surprise that even the subject of reparations for slavery has once again been, been discussed in the era of Trump? No. If I, if I can return... If I can return to Theo Harris and her book, she contends, and I kind of agree, that the general public never supports the civil rights movement in real time when it's actually happening. She claims in her book that the same tired criticisms that were made against King and Rosa Parks then are made today against Colin Kaepernick and the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I, I presume you, you would agree with that, would you not, Simon? Uh, unfortunately, uh, yes. I mean, I, I, I really wish I could say I disagree, but I can't. If you look at, at Kaepernick and Black Lives Matter supporters, they're called disruptive, radical, extremists, troublemakers. The President of the United States, who's supposed to be the spokesperson for freedom and equality, calls for Kaepernick to be fired, remember? Right. Don't all these things have don't all these things have parallels in the civil rights movement? Yes. It it's it sounds very familiar. And it's sixty years later. Let's go back in time to nineteen sixty three. Contrary to uh, the, the King Holiday and our rosy view of history, and the view that the, the speech itself was a highlight or the highlight of the Civil Rights Movement and King's career, people should know that the speech was delivered in a climate of considerable fear and unrest. Um, Theo Harris, in her book, opines that in 1963, federal and local law enforcement prepared for the event as if it was an invasion. Those are the words she used. This sounds very similar to Charlottesville today, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's not a whole lot different. The bottom line, history since the speech demonstrates a rise in anti-Semitism, a rise in white supremacy, a rise in income inequality, banking, credit, redlining, and home ownership inequality, charging and sentencing inequality, or the rash of top-on black shootings like the one depicted in Betrayal in Black. This demonstrates, unfortunately, that the speech and the 1964 Civil Rights Act that followed it a year later did not cure our nation's race problem. Hell, it didn't even cure our institutional racism problem, as books like Betrayal in Black and The Hate You Give point out. It took 15 years after his death, Simon, to get the country to honor Dr. King with this day. President Ronald Reagan, who commemorated 
the King holiday, thought he was a communist. He didn't believe he deserved recognition. He deferred to public sentiment only after he ran for a second term. A majority of Americans today finally believe him to be worthy of a day. Most people didn't agree with a, the concept of a Martin Luther King Day. Now, on the plus side, almost 60 years after it was delivered, the I Have a Dream speech, or, or just those four words, I Have a Dream, have been used by activists all over the world. And that's a good thing. But do we really appreciate the speech in the context of what was happening when it was first delivered? What, do you, what, what was going on in the country in 1963, especially during the March on Washington, where he delivered that famous speech? There was just a good, deal of, <laughs> a good deal of unrest. That's for sure. That's for sure. In his speech, the first thing King reminded us of was that the black population was, quote, sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. Interesting words, no? Indeed. Manacles and chains. He deliberately referenced slavery over 100 years after Lincoln freed the slaves. Why did he do that? I'll tell you why he did that. Before you ask. He did it because in 1963, unbelievably, Jim Crow laws, laws that mandated racial segregation, were still in full force in the South. Ten weeks before his speech, Alabama governor, Alabama governor George Wallace, another famous racist who might have become president, tried to prevent two African-American students from enrolling at the University of Alabama. Do you remember this incident? Um, not, not in any detail. Okay. So, um... well, students of history may recall that President John F. Kennedy had to send the National Guard to Alabama to make the governor, who, by the way, was a Democrat, stand <laughs> down. Now, can you imagine something like that happening with our current Republican majority and this Republican president today? No. In, in, 19, in 1963, a Democrat made a fellow Democrats stand down and stand up for racial equality. Can you see the Republican majority and our current Republican president do that today? This is not progress. This is digression. Absolutely not. I'm um, I, I I spent some time um ruminating over uh the 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 subject we we were we are discussing and um 
quite frankly, I I, I think that um, somewhere along the lines, we have taken a quantum leap backwards. Um, I, I believe or, or, that... Or, 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 to be, or to be somewhat fair, maybe sideways. Um, maybe, I, I don't know. maybe sideways. Keep in mind that at the time of the speech, the civil rights movement was in full swing. Um, King and people like Rosa Parks were into peaceful sit-ins and boycotts. Uh, you will remember that Rosa Parks, uh, the pride of Detroit, by the way, she ended up moving to Detroit and spent the rest of her life in the Detroit area where I live. Uh, she refused to give up her bus, her seat on a bus, um, and got arrested for doing so. Um, but a lot of civil rights protesters were resorting to violence. And one example of that was the Birmingham, Alabama riot in May of 1963, shortly before the speech. Now, King spoke of what he called whirlwinds of revolt. Um, the question at the time was, would those whirlwinds be peaceful or would they be militant and riotous? As there were probably riots in uh, hundreds of towns uh, and cities across the country. We had one in Detroit in 1967, four years later, where I live, and it seriously fractured race relations in the city and its suburbs for many years to come. Um, I, I'm not a, I'm not uh, someone who isn't um, involved or uh, familiar with uh, a, a city that has been harmed by our ability to get along. And here's, a, here's an, an additional history lesson as to what was going on in 1963 when the speech was delivered. King, to his credit, sensed that the country might finally be willing to embrace a civil rights act. And that's why uh, he got together with five other prominent civil rights activists that organized the March on Washington in August of 1963, just four months after those riots I spoke of. Picture this, Simon. 250,000 protesters gathered in front of Lincoln Memorial. It's hot as hell outside, and the marchers are tired. Um, Norman Naylor, terrific author, um, described it as, quote, in baseball terms, by the way, a middle of the muted disappointment which attacks the crowd in the seventh inning of a very important baseball game when the score has gone to 11 to 3. <laughs> they, were, they were ready to go home. And they were leaving by the time King began to speak. Uh, times were very difficult for him. He'd been arrested several times. He received numerous death threats. And he endured assassination attempts. 
And most people don't recognize that he was also receiving organized opposition from his own people on the issue of civil rights. Malcolm X, who was a little more radical than King, called the event the farce on Washington. But there was King in front of 250,000 people. A quarter of a million people, Simon, were waiting for him to speak. He approaches the podium, and the Helia Jackson begins to sing, I've been buked, and I've been scorned. I can't make it alone. Starts slowly, he sticks to the script, and all of us are familiar with the I Have a Dream portions, but he also referred a lot to our government and our Constitution. He referenced Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, he made references to the law, he made references to the Constitution, uh, very identifiable sections of the Constitution. Why did you do this? Because we're all familiar with these references. And by themselves, they gave the speech legal credibility. In that context, he spoke of America's unpaid debt to its black citizens. After all, black citizens are citizens too, right? That's why they're called citizens. As citizens of the United States, don't they have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Did they then? Don't they still today? Yes. That's the essence of what we're talking about here. He, He referred to the event as a mission to cash the check on a promissory note that was at least 100 years overdue. Powerful stuff, Simon. He made financial references. He gave his audience a history lesson about the past century. America's Bank of Justice, as he called it, had defaulted and marked the check with insufficient funds for citizens of color. This march, he said, was to obtain citizenship rights for all people, no different than the objective of the Founding Fathers in 1776. And of course, he was a minister that we invoke the Bible. And all of our people uh, have a keen understanding of the Bible. And he, as a minister, had a very keen understanding of the Scripture. And he compared the plight of Negro, again, which was an acceptable reference back in 1963, not politically corrupt then, or now, but was then, but he compared the plight of black people to the book of Exodus and the Israelis. People who found themselves in exile in their own land. And of course, think about the context and the times. Everybody knew this story, Simon. Hell, the Ten Commandments was the country's highest grossing film just seven years before this. That's the, that's the, again, that's the context of time 
or the time of the speech. The comparison was brilliant in terms of escaping oppression and slavery and reaching to the promised land. Doesn't everybody deserve to be free, especially in America? Self-proclaimed land of the free? Many people don't know this, Simon, but, and, and I, by the way, didn't know it until I prepared for this podcast, but according to legend, King was about to, to conclude his remarks on a decent but not memorable speech, and he had used the I Have a Dream theme in past speeches, but apparently Mahalia Jackson stood up and shouted, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. I don't know if this was part of a plan or not, but King suddenly changed his tone, according to various reports. He became much more animated, and the rest of the speech, as we all know, has gone down in history. Now, as I indicated earlier, he used these words before, but in this instance, he seemed to depart from prepared notes, and it became perhaps the most famous ad lib of all times. And I'd like to quote some of what he said. Quote, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. I'm sorry, I'm reading the same thing again. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Can we imagine that? I don't think so, but he could. Here's your here's your Mississippi reference. You ready? <laughs> Yeah, I have a, I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I'll let you comment on on that in a minute. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Now, throughout our history, Simon, our people have had many reasons to come to America. Um, Dr. King's dream is probably a big reason for coming to America, but one of the largest reasons that he invoked was a search for freedom. And he concluded his remarks with multiple references to America's most precious asset, our freedom. Quote, let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York, from the Alganese of Pennsylvania, from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado, from the curvaceous slopes of California, not only that, but let freedom ring from Stone Mountain in Georgia, Lookout Mountain in Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. 
When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Great God Almighty, we are free at last. Jeez, Simon, it, it gives me goosebumps every time I revisit the words. It's just, it's just incredible, and it's just, it's just as poignant and incredible today. What did you think of the Mississippi references? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, not sure I'd. Uh go around bragging about it around here the South, anyway. The, the, South, the South has come a long way, but again, the issue, uh, one of the big issues, in fact, to me, it's the biggest issue in terms of judging this notion of freedom. A year after the speech, in 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act. That's the impact this speech had. And obviously that's very important. A year later, and this is less well-known, in 1965, Congress passed the Voting Rights Act. Now, you and I have discussed this in the past. One of the America's biggest challenges today are these new voter identification laws that reduce turnout among African Americans. And by the way, it's interesting, is it not, that one party wants to encourage voter turnout while the other party plots ways to discourage it? We discussed this very topic when we discussed gerrymandering in, in, uh, I think it was North Carolina, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and that Supreme Court decision? Yep. This is, we're talking about the same thing. <laughs> in 1963, here's another issue for you. In 1963, one of the big topics of the March on Washington was jobs and freedom. Today, the unemployment rate for African Americans is 9.5, more than twice the 4.6 rate for whites. So again, how far have we really come? The speech, the speech also makes reference to, and I quote King, the winds of police brutality. And as you mentioned, King himself was a victim of this, the families of Michael Brown, Orlando Castile, Freddie Gray, and others know this scourge of racism all too well. Novels like My Betrayal in Black and The Hate You Give have tried to shine a light on this injustice. Now, as a lawyer, I wrote Betrayal in Black to examine how the civil and criminal justice systems might handle such a case. 
But on this historic Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, I would like to challenge America. I would like to invite a national discussion on the impact literature might have or can have on social, civil, and criminal justice issues. And I'm currently working on a presentation that will introduce this concept to high school juniors and seniors and early college students. The hate you give, small great things, a time to kill, my book, Betrayal in Black. Maybe those books can be used to help shape public opinion. I'm a firm believer that prejudice and inequality are born of ignorance and upbringing. When your parents or your grandparents were prejudiced, you have little chance not to inherit the gene, so to speak. What we need is, an, is to have an alternate picture presented. Education is essential to dispelling these notions. It's a key ingredient to eliminating prejudice. The bottom line, and I know I'm talking too much and preaching like I always did, but the bottom line is when we consider income disparity, voting disparity, housing disparity, criminal and civil justice disparity, as a country, we still have an awful long way to go. Um, what I'm hoping is that people will pick up a copy of these books I've mentioned. Um, the all-time greatest example of social justice, um, racial injustice uh, in our justice system is to kill a mockingbird. Um, now that's a, 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 a case in the criminal justice system primarily, but the themes of, of mockingbird um, are themes that still exist in our country today and it's, it's just extremely, extremely troubling to me. I'll be quiet for a second. <laughs> okay. Um, I've, I, I've, I've listened and I, I've thought about it. And I, I'd like to tell you a story. Um, we've lived here for, oh, I don't know, I think it's 11 years. Um, I, and you I don't talk, mind. And you still talk like that? <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, where's, I mean, where's your southern accent? Right. <laughs> I've, I, I've, uh, I, I've managed to keep my existing accent. Um, I, I really like to. Um, keep an open mind. I don't hate any uh, anyone. You know, no race, creed, religion, um, 
every everyone is fair game to me. And it, it's an odd place uh, to live. You know, we, we have lots of pickup trucks. We have a plethora of um, Confederate flags. And Boy, that's a whole different topic, but I, but I hear you. Right. But uh, in in all the time that I've lived here, there's only been one occasion where there's been any uh, any trouble, any issue with a local. Actually, issues, I should issues involving issues involving what? Um, well, being threatened. And being threatened for what reason? For being for what reason? For being white. Okay. All right. Needless to say, the um, people involved. Kind of rever- reverse racism. Right. Okay. Um, you know, I I keep myself to myself. Don't bother anyone. And that that did disturb me. You know, four young kids in a um a pimp mobile. Um, decided to uh, bother me while I was walking home from a convenience store. Um, They wanted to bum cigarettes, as I recall. Um, What if they they were were... white kids? Ah. Would you have felt felt the same way? Uh, Yes. But they were not white kids. <laughs> what, if, what if they were, though? Would, would would you have been just as uncomfortable? Yes, I, I probably would. But there's something about being um, accosted. You know, when, when you're in your um, 60s... But my, my point it, I don't mean I don't mean to interrupt you, but my point is that you were being accosted by people who had bad intentions, whether they were white or black. And my question right. is, were you were you upset or concerned because they were black, or because they seemed to be seemed to have criminal intentions? Uh, the latter. I, I, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if it made any difference what color they were. Now you, you you brought up the issue, and they happened to be black, and I presume you brought up the issue because they were black. But my point is that you're walking down the street, and you get approached in a malicious fashion by four people who have mischief on their mind. It really doesn't matter what color they are, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Now, having said that, I, I, I think all of us, if we're honest, are a little bit racist. Um, I, I think, I think, 
um, you know, we have to look at ourselves in the mirror, and, and uh, we are the we are children and grandchildren of people who who carried these prejudices with them from other countries, from other cultures, from other states, um, and passed them on to us a bit. And I don't think any of us are are completely colorblind. Um, it's, some, it's something that I think generationally we'll get rid of eventually. But we find ourselves, um, you know, the children and grandchildren of, of people who had these uh, ingrained prejudices. And the key to this, in my opinion, the key to ending this forever and truly making this what Michael Kendall in my book called a post-racial society is education. And that's kind of the point of Betrayal in Black. I'd like people to read it. I'd like people to read Mockingbird. I'd like people to read The Hate You Give and other books that expose this kind of stuff and make people see how stupid it is. Uh, white people can have bad intentions. Black people can have bad intentions. White people can have good intentions. White people can have bad intentions. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a racial thing. Uh, but we as a society seem to make it. So, uh, I don't know any black, white supremacists. Do you? Oh, no. <laughs> White supremacists are as bad as they come. Um, there's a good movie out there um, about, a, about a, uh, a a black cop who became a white supremacist. I forget the name of it, but it was an interesting film. Uh, but, uh, but other than him, I, I can't think of anybody that uh, he actually he actually uh, had a. a, a white officer in his precinct pretend to be him. And that's how he got away with being this uh, this black-white supremacist. Uh, he was trying to infiltrate the, uh, the uh, uh, white supremacists of his community. Uh, but I'm getting, I'm getting off the subject. I just think that, that this discomfort that you felt was more related to um criminal mischief than it was to color. So give yourself a break is what I'm getting <laughs> Okay, Mark, I'm looking at the clock. We've got about five minutes left. Um, mm-hmm. Why don't you um, tell us a little bit about your books, where people can buy them, all that sort of good stuff. Okay. Um, all of my books, uh, The Trail in Black is my fourth book. Um, the first three and The Trail in Black are all available as ebooks on Amazon. Uh, we are in the process, we just completed actually, creating the hard copy um, version of uh, The Trail in Black, as I indicated earlier. So, those of you who like to actually hold and read 
an actual book rather than a Kindle or Nook reader can now purchase a uh, print version of The Trail in Black. In the next week or so, uh, on Amazon, by the way. So far, it's exclusively on Amazon. Um, in the future, in the very near future, you'll be able to purchase my first book, The Trail of Faith, my second book, The Trail of, Just- of Justice, and and later, my third book, The Trail in Blue, um, as uh, a hard copy print version as well. Uh, all of the books are available for Kindle on Amazon. All four of the books will soon be available in print. And shortly thereafter, after we release the print versions, they will also be available um, on other non-Amazon book-selling sites like uh, Barnes & Noble and Kobo and Apple and Google and so on and so forth. They're not available yet, but they will be uh, shortly. Uh, also, I should mention that in the coming months, certainly before the end of 2020, we'll be releasing Book 5 and Book 6. Uh, book 5 is entitled um, The Trail High, which is about a school shooting and um, the uh, way the civil and criminal justice system handles that type of event, similar similar to the Black, the Trail in Black novel, uh, I've kind of uh, taken the school shooting uh, situation and uh, written a similar book uh, about how the civil and criminal justice system might handle uh, a school shooting event. And then the sixth book is called Supreme Betrayal, and it's about a candidate for the Supreme Court who, um, in his youth 20 years earlier, um, sexually assaulted a young uh, high school student. Uh, so, again, I think most people could see that uh, those two books, as well as The Trail in Black, and my other novels, the first one based on a uh, actual case I handled of um, a Catholic priest molesting a child, uh, and the second two relating to discrimination against Muslims and white supremacy. Uh, all of my books tend to be uh, these ripped from the headline type civil social justice advocacy books, and that's uh, what I'm known for. So Amazon, the key is. Mark M. Pello, Amazon, and you'll find all of the betrayal, Zachary Blake, legal thriller novels. Mark, it, it has been uh, a tremendous program. I hope you've enjoyed yourself as much as I have. Um, but we're flat out of time. Well, so hopefully we've educated some people, and hopefully we've educated some people, and and uh, um, demonstrated that uh, 
while while we as a country have made some strides, we have a long way to go. Yes, I I think that was uh, abundantly clear. Um, we we have made progress. Uh, unfortunately, I. I, I see it going backwards at the moment, but uh, yeah, give it time. Hang in there. Hang in there, right? I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so, this is Simon Barrett wishing everyone a happy, healthy, and safe week. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Journey into Justice. Till then, goodbye. Good night, everybody. Okay. See you all uh, next Monday. Goodbye.